Great. Well, welcome to our panel on decarbonisation and, and geopolitics. Obviously, a very nice, light, uncomplicated uh, topic for this time in the morning. Um, obviously, this is something that no one is a, a total expert on, but something that we all need to keep in mind when we're planning both short-term and long-term strategy for business. Um, there's going to be a couple of different perspectives on the, the panel today, and I'm sure you all have your own perspectives as well. And hopefully we'll have about 10 minutes at the end um, for questions. Um, so do keep thinking about those as we go through um, so that we can have those at the end. So I'll start by asking my uh, panellists to introduce themselves. Uh, we'll try and keep this short so that there's more time for, for discussion, but I'm sure that if you want to find out more, uh, we'd be happy to discuss in the breaks later on. William, do you want to start? Hello. Yes, thanks, Sarah. Uh, my name is William Fairclough. I'm the Managing Director of Wakong Maritime Transport, which is a Hong Kong-based ship owner, uh, traditional ship owner, with uh, vessels in the bulk carrier and tanker space. Um, I'm the managing director based in the London office, which is a relatively newly set up office uh, where we you know, really look to bridge the gap between east and west. Obviously, we have a large footprint in, in China and you know, what we've noticed over the last three years over COVID is, is there's an increasing sort of gap between east and west. And so being based here in London where a lot of our customers are, are within Europe and the US, we're, we're trying to bridge that gap. Um, and obviously geopolitics plays you know, a big part in, uh, in that challenge. Thank you, Will. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Alistair MacDonald. I'm the Chief Corporate Development Officer at Purist Marine. Uh, we are one of, if not the only, uh, ship owner operator who is 100% focused in investing in green, uh, low carbon shipping. If you haven't heard of Purist Marine, that's fine. Uh, we were launched 15 months ago. Uh, it's been a bit of a journey since then. We have acquired 46 vessels, or ordered, uh, with, with a total gross asset value of 1.3 billion, EBITDA of 140 million across four separate divisions, wind, ferries, logistics, and clean energy. Uh, which are all intentionally diversified. Our strategy is to diversify into infra-like sectors with long-term charters and uh, good residual risk. Uh, good morning, I'm Guy Platten. I'm Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping. And for those who haven't heard of the ICS, we're uh, made up of national ship owner associations and collectively represent about 80% of the world's fleet. And we lobby for shipping at international fora such as the IMO, the International Labour Organization, World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, and other UN bodies. And we also hopefully promote and uh, advocate for shipping to the wider society. Thank you. I'm Herman Billung, uh, CEO of uh, 2020 Burkers and Himalaya Shipping, both listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange. I guess I'm here in the capacity of Himalaya Shipping CEO because we have invested in uh, dual fuel LNG vessels. We have 12 vessels on order, uh, presently being built in China. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and I am a, a Disputes and ESG partner at uh, Watson Farley and Williams. Um, so very much kind of looking at these issues from a risk perspective, um, looking at what the future strategy is, but also alignment um, between that strategy, policies and procedures, and, and implementation um, within a 
company in order to try and mitigate those risks. So been really fascinating um, preparing for the, this panel. Um, I think when we think about decarbonisation and, and shipping, the very first thing we think about is fuel. Um, so let's start there. And um, Herman, I think from your introduction, we can already perhaps tell what you think the fuel of the future is. I would say uh, the, the fuel of the future is very uncertain. Uh, but uh, and, uh, we all agree that the decarbonisation comes at the cost. Uh, right now, obviously, it doesn't look particularly smart. We have spent $15 million to have uh, LNG tanks, given the cost of LNG at the moment. But we firmly believe that LNG is the kind of the, the best transitional fuel, alternative fuels, I think is far, far out on the curve. Um, so at least in our vessel's lifetime of the next 20 years, uh, we believe LNG is, is the best uh, alternative fuel. And, uh, uh, and one reason for that is uh, what is being, what is happening on, on availability and infrastructure around LNG. A lot of new capacities coming into place. And I think that's really the, 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 the bottleneck or the, the, uh, the biggest hurdle for other alternative fuels is, is uh, availability and, and the price of the commodity itself. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, that's very much the case in terms of the types of vessels that you have. Um, but Alastair, the types of vessels that you deal with are um, a bit more varied, and perhaps that means that there's a, a bigger variety of fuels that are available. Yeah, I think that, that's right, sir. I mean, I think, I think the choice of fuel will not be a one-size-fits-all for across the shipping industry. It'll be very industry-specific. If you've got an LNG carrier, you're clearly going to look to burn dual fuel. If you're moving ammonia, you'll obviously look to have green ammonia as your dual fuel source. Uh, but outside of that, I think each individual industry will take its own view. You know, we have river ferries which will look towards batteries and hydrogen to get to decarbonisation because they travel shorter distances. They don't have the same fuel and range needs of other assets. The wind industry is moving towards a combination of batteries with offshore electrification combined with green methanol when the assets are in the construction phase. So I think it is a mixture of particular solutions, and I think what you will find is people choose the fuel which works for them on their particular route. If you're moving up and down the coast of Norway and there's a green hydrogen plant, great, use green hydrogen, but it's not going to work for you if you're offshore the US. So it is going to be very situational specific. I think the industries that have the biggest challenge are those which are international in nature, uh, where they need to call in any one of hundreds of ports across the world. There they need to make a really uh, important choice about what fuel they can access uh, reliably and I think their optionality will always be the, the key decision maker in people's orders for the time being. Great, thank you. Um, and William, I thought one of the, the interesting things that you picked up on when we were preparing for this panel was that we often think about decarbonisation and what fuel the vessels are going to um, be using. Um, but actually, the wider um, decarbonisation um, picture is going to have a, a real um, impact on uh, vessels of the future. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you could broadly sort of split um, shipping down the middle. The container industry will still be shipping containers around for the foreseeable future. What's inside them may change, obviously, for... The energy sectors, where you know we're very present, tankers, bulk carriers, and uh, gas carriers at some level, 
there's a huge uncertainty in terms of um, you know, the cargo as much as there is the fuel. And when trying to quantify the size of the challenge, I think you know, Ali talked a little bit about optionality. My, my sense is, um, from the propulsion perspective, I, I think as owners, we, you know, we can't be the ones trying to pick the availability of fuel um, you know, as it's going to be economically viable for the shipping industry because we're so far removed from the power industry. And that's one of the problems is guys been doing a lot of work and a lot, a lot of other organizations to bring closer together the shipping industry and the power industry and the whole supply chain. So, you know, in, in a sense, um, you have to then start wondering about if you're building a new ship, you're just going to give optionality. So everything ready, you know, you, you, you effectively build a ship that's sufficient today but can be retrofitted for whatever the fuel uh, becomes available where, you know, there's actual realistic scale, there's economic viability, and there's a sort of safety concerns of all will address. And I don't think we know that. So just going off in one direction is very risky if you're trying to allocate a significant amount of capital into an asset that may have to last 25 years. In fact, it's potentially, you know, suicidal. So you need to keep your options open. And for a container industry, that's fine. But actually, if you're, if you're going to be transporting oil around and you're building a new VLCC and that's got to last 20 years or so, you have to start looking at you know, what volumes of um, shipped oil are going to be in, in, in the sort of latter half of that vessel's life or even maybe earlier. And so that, I think, is, is one of the, the, the real challenges. Um, and you've seen that there's been a real reticence on, on that ordering of tankers. And I think that um, also comes into quantifying the size of the challenge because how many vessels are we going to need by 2030 or 2040 once energy is actually um, coming from different sources, and that's really started to scale out. And I think as a shipping industry, probably, you know, we're, we're not as engaged with the power industry as we need to be. Um, but, but ultimately, that, you know, that we, we need to be. Um, otherwise, I think there's a huge risk. Thanks. So, Guy, we've heard a lot about challenges, um, need for flexibility, need to build in op optionality, which obviously comes at a cost itself. Uh, is it all doom and gloom for shipping? No, I think, well, thank you. I think there's some great opportunities for shipping. It's really interesting. IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energies Agency based in Abu Dhabi, and they collect about 130 governments contributing to IRENA. But their latest report, they estimate that 50% of all clean fuels will have to be transported by sea. And that creates enormous opportunity, particularly bearing in mind that most of the green fuels are much less energy dense than the fossil fuels they replace there's going to be a, a, a requirement for specialised vessels in order to carry this stuff around. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind there's one hydrogen carrier in the world at the moment between operating between Australia and Japan. And we've been engaging quite a lot with energy ministries. We uh, presented at the Clean Energy Ministerial in Pittsburgh um, and talked to a lot of governments and basically saying it's great that you've got these plans for clean energy, but have you actually thought about how you're going to get that clean energy to market? And wouldn't it be a good idea to engage with shipping now so that we can actually plan ahead, look at the investment that's needed, and de-risk some of that. And uh, you know, you just can't magic up a ship in a, in a month or, or even a year. It takes some time to be able to design, plan, place the orders, and, and, and deliver them. So there's a real opportunity for shipping. Of course, there's a challenge in the terms of the decarbonisation, and I absolutely agree. I think it'll be a many-fueled uh, outlook. You know, whether it's green methanol, ammonia, hydrogen, nuclear, battery, or, or a combination of all of them as well, but certainly there's a great opportunity for shipping um, and we need to engage now in order to plan for the future. Thanks, Herman. No, I would say when you said doom and gloom, I, I would say rather the opposite in a way, because the uh, 
the situation is that given the uncertainty of the fuel of the future, at least for bulkers, we have a record low order book because people don't really know what to order. Um, and another thing, it is, it, we have regulations coming fairly soon, uh, something called the CII, uh, Carbon Intensity Index. And I just saw uh, Pacific Basin, a, a, a big player in, in, in the smaller sizes of bulkers, in their own uh, presentation, they said that 70% of their fleet uh, will kind of have to do something uh, and 70% uh, of the fleet will be affected and they will lose, if they're going to go for grade D, they will lose 15% of their capacity and go to C, 25% of the capacity and that's what is the capacity is speed reductions. Uh, so it's, it's going to be, I think it's not doom and gloom but rather some interesting opportunities ahead of us due to the uh, productivity or utilization of the fleet. Great. So I think that there's a real balance here between what fuels are good for the um, industry, um, what fuels are going to be available for the industry, um, that they're not uh, otherwise taken by other um, needs to um, produce power, um, and also what fuels we have space for. Um, because obviously when you need to have different infrastructure for different types of fuels, that puts a real pressure um, on the port infrastructure. Um, we know that a number of ports are in um, built-up areas or areas that um, might be adjacent to um, areas where there's um, marine or, or other biodiversity issues. Um, and I know from a lot of my um, ESG disputes work that wherever land issues come into play and you're interacting with where people live, um, that's going to, to cause a bit of an issue, um, potentially. Um, so all of these things kind of need to be balanced. Um, and I think, um, Guy, you've been doing some work with uh, kind of different government players, working out what the future is going to be, look like and... Um, I think it's just encouraging governments to think strategically when you come to producing the fuels. And you're right, I think there's going to be some real ESG challenges to face. I mean, who really wants an ammonia tank farm next to their house, with the, given the toxicity of that? And I think those, those are real societal issues which are going to have to be addressed as we transition. But also to think through the entire supply chain as you, as you go. So shipping is, plays a, as I said, it's going to be a, play a, a big role in transporting these fuels. But you need to make sure the infrastructure is there. And that planning needs to start now, really. And, and it's trying to persuade all the players in the supply chain to not to act in silos, but actually to reach across and speak to each other. And that way, everyone can maximise the opportunity and actually help with the transition to a cleaner future. So it's something that we're engaged in, along with um, the stuff we have to do for our own industry in terms of decarbonisation and the work with IMO and the regulations, CIIs and EEXIs and all these different things which are coming down the, the, the track and hopefully at some point some sort of economic or market-based measure to um, help transition to the new fuels. But we also need to engage outside of our sector as well to maximise the, the opportunities for the future. So, obviously, depending on which vessel you have, there might be room for using different alternative fuels, but um, certainly for, for deep sea, LNG is very much still the, the front runner. Um, that means that in order to meet the targets around decarbonisation, obviously something extra is going to have to happen as well. 
Um, now, I'm sure you've all read in the um, press some different reports about some really innovative ways to uh, essentially use the, the time um, when a cargo is in transit, uh, potentially reuse some of the um, exhaust gases. And um, we saw one the other day for um, drying logs. Um, using the uh, exhaust gases um, from a vessel as it, as it transitions. Um, but are there enough innovations um, to, to get us through? Um, what other innovations are we going to see? William, do you want to? Thank you. Um, I suppose these um, uh, all uh, lead towards efficiencies and making sure that uh, we are as efficient as possible. In the meantime, I think data plays a huge role in that. Um, this concept of the green corridor that we saw introduced, um, I think it was about a year ago during COP26, was, I think, largely based on the idea of what the fuel would be. But I think the interesting part for that is you've got sort of bilateral agreements whereby you can introduce requirements that people who want to participate on those trade lanes actually have to engage in the efficiency of the entire supply chain, which will force the different players within the supply chain to actually work collaboratively to create efficiencies and an example, simple example is you have two ships that are racing to get you know, the first um, notice of readiness tendered and one of them will then discharge and the other one will sit there. But actually if they had worked collaboratively and one had gone faster and one had slowed down, you obviously have to penalize one and reward the other in order to um, prioritize the whole supply chain's efficiency from, a, from an emissions perspective. That's a really naughty challenge but I think it, it, it's one that it offers huge sort of instant sort of low-hanging fruit, probably 15, 20% of the sort of numbers that you've seen across the whole, across the whole fleet. So that's a data challenge largely, and, and it's a legal challenge as well, and I think that's the way it's being addressed. You've got you know, lots of other different um, innovations such as improved paint work and, and, and sort of under, under uh, hull paint, uh, low friction paint, and all these little things, 5% here, 10% here. If you add them all up, of course, they come to up more than 100%, so it does, doesn't make much sense. But we have to you know, prioritize those efficiencies. New innovation, I think disruptive technology, disruptive innovation, yes, you, you, it, will, it may well happen, and, and, and that, that will obviously um, play a part. But you need scale. And that's the thing is, you know, we, we operate on a huge scale and we have to just remember in shipping as well that the decarbonisation is a sort of team sport and we're all involved in it together. And we have to prioritise, it's quite a fashionable to say this by the way, we have to prioritise the order in which we do things. Shipping is a hard to abate sector. There are enormous quantities of renewable energy that need to be produced and are being produced and we look into the sort of offshore wind industry and over the last few weeks shipping is notoriously badly sort of in touch or engaged with, with that industry but there are huge plans for vast quantities of energy that are, that are really becoming you know, more and more concrete um, with every passing week. How is that energy best used within the context of global decarbonisation? It may be that shipping you know, doesn't have a role to play in using that energy to produce quite an inefficient alternative to our relatively efficient um, current approach of, of you know, using, using marine fuel. And th that's not to say we don't do it, but it's just what's the ideal, what's the optimal order in which we all have to decarbonize as a supply chain. And I think that's why the engagement with, um, across the industries and you know, across the whole supply chain and ultimately with the consumer is so important. And 
we almost need someone to sit at the top, the headmaster, to say, right, this is the order in which we do things, guys, and, and you wait here, and then now it's your turn. It's, it's idealistic, it's ridiculous, but in a sense, that kind of collaborative thought is, I think, what's required. And I sense that that is actually starting. People realise that. It's just unfashionable to say it, and maybe we're not a listed company. It's easier for me to say it, but that is one of the, um, the, the, the sort of creeping trends that I, I sense, and I think amongst ship owners who obviously worry about building the wrong thing, just build in the optionality and, and just be open-minded. And then the energy companies and the energy and the governments and everything who's looking at resources will, will, will start to actually quantify the size of um, you know, the available energy. That's what we're all talking about is energy. And then we sort of go from there. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of the work that I do um, on ESG is really looking at those types of nuances. Um, so it's very easy to say that you should switch to an alternative fuel, but then what does that do to the size of the fuel tanks that you need? What does that do to um, how much you can then carry? Does that mean that you then need to make extra trips? Um, you know, everyone says, for example, you should be switching to an um, electric car. Um, but Volvo have actually um, produced some figures um, looking at the amount of energy that goes into making an electric car. Um, and it takes almost 10 years of having to use that car before you actually get the efficiencies from the fuel back. So we do really need to look at it in this, this holistic sense. And I think that there's also some um, lessons or inspiration that shipping can take from other sectors where they've used AI um, very um, successfully um, in order to be able to plan and optimise um, routes and, and how different parts of the process um, interact with each other. Now, we could definitely talk about uh, innovation for a lot longer, um, but I know we want to have some time for questions. Um, and I just wanted to touch on another thing, because we've talked a lot about the decarbonisation, but not necessarily about the rest of the geopolitical issues. Um, and often with shipping, it is a global industry. We talk about a lot of um, globalisation. Um, but Alistair, I know that you've seen a bit of the opposite um, as well in the last couple of years in terms of specific governments almost focusing inwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true, Sarah, in, in, in the wind industry, for example, where you know, you're not making into intra-country journeys, you're just moving from, from one port out to sea and back again, you have seen a rapprochement into local content. In the UK, for sure, you know, if you don't have UK local content in your tender, you, you don't make it to the final round. You don't necessarily get told why, but you know why. You know, we, we've had tenders in France and it's been, it's been worse. You know, and the same is true across all other European countries where this sort of concept of the European Union free-for-all free rules just doesn't actually apply in practice. So I think that that move towards local content is, is definitely happening. You take a look across at the US, who's, who's trying to build out the entire global offshore wind capacity itself, and they have the Jones Act. Everything must be built within the US. It's, it's going to be its major limiting factor for it to be able to achieve that goal is the fact that it won't take in, and it cannot take in legally, any international support. You know, when you look at who has been most effective, it's China, who have just gone out and done it with governmental decree. This is what we all do, and we all go and do it. You know, and I think, taking on a slight tangent, you know, the European Union has gone through a slightly different tack with the ETS, where they've said to people, in order for you to encourage you, we will tax you. It'll cost you more to not be green. And that has been a fundamental game changer for the receptivity of, of our product to people. You could go to people with a green vessel and they'd say, yeah, yeah, I like it. But will it cost the same as a normal vessel? Well, no, it's going to cost you more. And then, oh, yeah, well, maybe we'll take a conventional vessel. But now, post the ECS scheme, 
they can go to their boss and say, not only is this a greener vessel, I'm actually saving money because the, the efficiency savings in the fuel mean that I'm saving more tax than I'm spending on a higher charter rate. That has been a fundamental shift in the mentality of people within Europe, which is why the majority of our business has been done within Europe to date. But that's a free tax. That's free money for the European Union. You know, the, the likelihood of the US and China and Japan and South America copying that scheme is incredibly high when they realize it's, it's just a free source of money where they're taxing big energy corporations, big logistics corporations, and, and nobody's going to care. So I suspect that ETS scheme will go worldwide, and then you'll see that decarbonization shift really happen really quickly, because suddenly it will become financially imperative to become green. Great. Guy, I think you've seen some kind of protectionist events as well, but will that turn into globalised ones uh, in the future as yeah, well? Jeff, I'd just answer the, to sort of respond also to Alistair's, you know, the EU ETS. I think it will be a nightmare if we have so many different regional taxation schemes in place just for someone to operate. And I think we really do have to use the opportunity which you've got now because the EU ETS is likely to be delayed by one year due to the current energy crisis, to use that year very effectively and try and lobby hard and persuade governments to sign up to a, uh, a worldwide market-based measure, uh, whether that's a, you know, our, our preference will be some sort of levy uh, on, the, uh, on the fuels as well. And, and that's something we're going to be working very hard at. But you're right, I think if the EU ETS goes ahead, it's likely to be other regional schemes will follow in their suit. And I think that's something which we should, as a global industry, try and, and fight against. Um, but so, so the question again was, sorry. Uh, sorry, just thinking about globalisation <laughs> yeah. versus inwards looking. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. It's, but I think what we have seen, particularly since COVID struck, is a, a rise of protectionism. I think there's been a lot more focus by national governments and their own, um, and their own uh, sort of society, and you touched on that as well in, in your intervention. And that's something, again, we need to make the case a, a global rules-based order uh, of international law. We've, we've seen so many examples of it now, and that's something we need to guard against because we know that free trade, free markets do lift people out of poverty. And we, we need to start making the case of that again and to, to avoid that if, if at all possible. But we're seeing just so many shifts in the geopolitics. You see the Ukraine conflict, you see what's happening elsewhere around the world, and you can see trade routes and, and shipping routes are going to be altering as a result of this as we try and navigate our way through the plethora of sanctions, uh, protectionist measures, and, and just the way the, the, the conflicts are panning out across the world. Good. Now, it's nearly time for your questions, so I hope you've got them ready. And um, before we go to that, um, just one further issue. So in uh, March 2021, uh, Watson Farley uh, released our sustainability imperative report, um, which surveyed a number of owners and, and financiers as to what the biggest issues um, for them in the next five years were. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, decarbonisation came out at the very top with over a quarter of both owners and financiers. But only 4% at that time said that military conflict um, was a, a big issue for them within the next five years. Obviously, things then changed very quickly, um, and perhaps we'd say that uh, military conflict is a, a bigger issue um, for the industry now. Um, but And also, WFW are about to go into sustainability um, imperative mark two um, so there'll be a, a chance for everyone to, to contribute that to that and if you'd like to please um, seek out one of my uh, Watson Farley colleagues um, during the course of today and give them uh, your details so that you can input into that 
Um, but the, the panel's views first. I mean, where are we going to be in, in five years' time? Is decarbonisation still going to be at the top? Um, are we still going to be thinking about black swan events like COVID and, um, uh, and, and military conflict, Herman? I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, the biggest challenge is that uh, I think the energy crisis would have been here in spite of Ukraine. I think it's heavily underinvested. And, but on top now, uh, right now, I mean, God forbid, but we are transporting coal. I thought coal wasn't that something that was dead. Not really. It's, uh, we had, I see routes I haven't seen for 10, 15 years with the Indonesian coal going to Italy. I mean, it's, it's, so it's, uh, I think energy crisis in general, lack of, lack of fossil fuels will be an even bigger challenge in five years' time because, unfortunately, I think the uh, alternative fuels, which we obviously all welcome, but it's not going to happen uh, as soon as we hope for. Great. William? Uh, yeah, so decarbonisation and geopolitics, which is the title, I suppose it's the geopolitics of decarbonisation that we're kind of talking about here. And, um, you know, that, that uh, I think, I think, the transition will define the rest of my career. I, it should do, I hope it does. And geopolitics will always exist. And um, geopolitics of today, are, you know, have, they have a deep influence on, on decarbonisation efforts. I mean, China have, over the next 10 years, next two five-year plans, huge uh, increase in LNG imports. Um, we know that that's the plan and that will happen. But if you're looking to buy a new LNG carrier today, given what's happened in Russia, you know, Europe, you know, Russian gas is no longer going to Europe or, or potentially won't be going to Europe. It's going to be going much longer haul. You know, that has huge implications on the LNG market, the ship market, you know, Ali's previous J job. And that's so reliant on almost one guy. You know, if he were to sort of not wake up tomorrow, then maybe that whole political, geopolitical uh, situation shifts and then trading routes go back to the sort of path of least resistance and you've got gas going from, from, from Europe, uh, from, from Russia back into Europe. Of course, everybody's you know, saying that won't happen, and we all try and pick what, what the next two or four years is going to be. Geopolitics w won't change, and, and of course, as, as new energy sources become available in larger and larger scale, and I think, you know, Herman's right to be sceptical, but at the same time, disruptive technology always takes people by surprise. The incumbents are always, which is why it's disruptive. So we have to believe that actually in 10 years we'll be looking back and going, wow, we didn't see that coming. It, we, we sort of know it's coming, but how fast is the, that disruption? Actually, the technology curve or the adoption curve for the cost of renewable energy, it, we, 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 we you know, hit a sort of tipping point where it becomes a much, much cheaper alternative. The, you know, the marginal cost of solar and wind is, is always going to be zero. For coal and, and, and oil and gas, it's never going to be zero. And, and so we, we may actually find it's much faster than we think. But it, it, whatever those two cases, the geopolitics are going to still play a big role because suddenly we need you know, access to all sorts of different materials, all sorts of different uh, natural resources in different parts of the world. The geopolitics of oil has defined probably most of our lives, and it may just shift to, to, to different regions. So that's part of shipping. In fact, you know, generally wars and conflicts and inefficiencies tend to be positive for shipping rates because they create inefficiency. That's just something we're used to. We sort of bake in geopolitics, throwing us curveballs every few years. What the transition is, is something different. I think it's more fundamental, and it's, it's a one-off. I think it's, it's, it's one, once every 100 years or whatever. 
And, and I think you have the spectre of stranded assets, which people scoff at, and they always do until they're stranded. And so I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm a, no, no form of sort of view on this that, that, that's a benefit to anyone in this room other than to say, you know, history is littered with transitions when they are much faster than people anticipate. And I think as a ship owner where you're allocating large amounts of capital, with all this going on, it'll, all I know is looking bad will seem very obvious when suddenly you're sitting there with a, with a stranded asset. So I think that's what we sort of as an industry face as a challenge is do we just keep going and, and hope it'll all be all right on the night or do we start to actually invest and you, you, you then risk, of course, investing too early and that's just as bad as being wrong. So, you know, those are the challenges, I suppose. Good. Alistair? Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I mean, I think by definition, trying to guess what the next black swan is will make you go crazy. I mean, you're not going to be able to predict what it is, but you know it will come. Um, the transition is going to be a 30-year transition, so it'll, it'll be there for, for the foreseeable future. But I think when you ask the question, what will it be like in five years' time, I think most people here are based in Europe, and I think you're all ahead of the curve when it comes to ESG. Whenever we speak to European investors, you, know, you, you, go, you go around the world, you speak to American investors, South American investors, Asian investors, and you're really focusing on getting them to believe in the decarbonisation story. And just focusing on the E. We're here today talking about decarbonisation. You go to investors in Europe and you say, yeah, we're, we're creating this shipping company that's going to decarbonise shipping. And I'm like, that, that's great. What's your ratio of male to, male to female crew? How are you empowering people to move forward? You know, what's your board structure like? Yeah, the Europeans have gone past the E. That's just a given. Now focus on the S and the G. So you ask me where will we be in five years' time? We'll all have accepted that decarbonisation has to happen. We'll all be doing whatever we can be doing. And we'll be here discussing the S and the G in five years' time. Excellent. And Guy? Yeah, how do you follow that? It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I do believe next five years will have, have increased in stability, but I do agree that decarbonisation is going to be here, top of the agenda. The S side of it, I think, is coming to the fore. We launched last year with the International Transport Workers Federation and the IMO and ILO a Just Transition Task Force, which is to make sure as we decarbonise, we bring all the developing nations with us on that journey, and that includes upskilling the crews, diversity, and all the things which I think are coming to the fore now, and that's really, really important. Uh, but also, uh, hopefully in five years' time, we'll see much more clarity on government's plans to increase the production of renewable fuels. At the moment, shipping alone would use up the entire world's renewable resources just to power shipping. So renewable resources have to increase 18-fold. And we, we've commissioned a bit of work with the University of Manchester just to look at what politicians' rhetoric is and what the actual reality is. And we'll be uh, announcing the results of that at COP27 in Egypt in a few weeks' time. But you can imagine the rhetoric and the reality are quite a long way apart. Mm -hmm. So there's a, I think we'll be talking about it in five years' time, but how far down the journey we really will have gone, I, I think, is open to debate. Very good. Thank you. I'm just not quite tall enough to see the timer, so that's why I keep <laughs> having to come out of my uh, chair. But we do have a couple of minutes left for questions. Um, okay, we've only got a few minutes, so what I'm going to do is ask all three of you to ask your questions, um, and then we'll um, go together. So if you want to start.
sure they are hot, they are warm in the winter, and they've got the supply chain working. And we don't see this upcoming recession because of this energy and the threat of uh, energy stability. Great. Thank you. Um, and the other two questions? Yep. Um, how do you see oil as part of the geomics? Okay, and final one. Yes, I wanted to ask you what is your view on energy retrofits? Because we're talking about the decarbonization, but we need to see it in its totality from cradle to grave in terms of emissions. And it seems to me that a new building is much more uh, challenging. Okay, so um, energy security, oil as part of the um, mix, um, and then retrofitting or, or new building. Herman, do you want to take whichever one uh, you want first? Um, I would say on retrofit on a new building. Um, I'm not sure if it's more challenging with a new building in a way, because you, like on a, on a dual fuel ship, vessel where you have LNG, the obvious thing then is to have her ammonia ready because you can use a lot of the, uh, of the equipment uh, on the same. Uh, and if you have, uh, say, a, a traditional oil or a, a traditional fuel uh, engine, then most likely methanol is, is the alternative. Uh, so, but, uh, but since we are kind of in the new building space, we haven't really focused so much on retrofitting, but I think it's quite challenging to retrofit. Another topic which could also be, it's what is interesting, just as a side comment, is uh, which we haven't discussed here, but uh, there are interesting things happening on carbon capture, uh, which could be a blessing in disguise uh, on... Uh, vessels equipped. I, I know that there are vessels today with scrubber towers where there are things happening on, at least they can capture some of, of, of the carbon, which I think is going to be an interesting kind of way ahead. But it's also early stages and you will only be able to capture, say, 20-25% of the, of the carbon. Alistair, you've got 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, we actually have carbon capture devices being fitted on our container vessels, so that's right, it's about 20-25%. And, and I think fundamentally that's going to be the solution for the older fleet, is carbon capture. Retrofits, we like the concept, they are fundamentally hard to do. The vessels aren't built with extra spare space, and you haven't left the space with the tank space, the piping and everything that's needed. It's very expensive, it's technically challenging, and that's why people are doing new builds. I hope there's a solution for retrofits. My suspicion is it's going to be carbon capture is the only way you decarbonise the existing fleet. Excellent. William. Uh, three good questions. Uh, the, the, the energy retrofits building on what Ali said, I would just take a sort of zo zoomed out view. We have to look at life cycle analysis for everything, whether it's well to wake on the energy source, whether it's um, you know, the energy retrofits versus on, a, on an existing ship versus a new building and look at the whole picture and whether or not that actually you know, is a step forward or step sideways, or in some cases even a step back. So I just think we need to use data more effectively to really measure, and what we measure, we manage. Um, in terms of oil as part of the fuel mix, I mean, you know, it's a million dollar question, of course, how far out you go. 
electric cars, as you said, you know, there's all sorts of conflicting data, but if you have enormous amounts of renewable energy available at some point, you know, I think that that's a transition on transportation that's, that's quite easy to see. It's, it's happened already and, it, and it's happening very fast. Um, and then I'm going to pass to Guy for the political <laughs> point because he's better in these sort of terms. That, thanks. For just, I think on the energy security side of it, you're quite right. I mean, society wants to make sure they've got, they're, they're heated, they're, they're warm, they've got light, they've got power. And I think energy security now is at the forefront of many governments' minds. In some ways, it might accelerate the transition to renewable. I think there's an opportunity there. But I think for the time being, most people are focused on getting, you know, as you said, Herman, ships carrying coal, which on, on routes which, you, which were sort of 10 years ago, you'd have seen them, but not now. So I think this is, in the short term, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. But I think there is an opportunity to really accelerate on the, uh, the production of renewable energy. Great, thanks. And, and we're over time now, so please uh, thank the panel for their insights.